Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything we miss? Anything you'd like to talk about? Um, the Dodgers are terrible, and they're the worst <laughs> team in the league. <laughs> this is true. She knows I'm not a big baseball fan, so I, I let her talk all, she this, she all, all the crap she wants. But She's just, not even a baseball fan. Yeah. <laughs> Watching Dr. Sean Fine banter with his patient, Lindsay, belies the fact that they've only known each other for three years. It's the type of rapport that we've sought to highlight on this podcast. Indeed, is the core idea of the show. Today, we'll hear a fascinating story on how Dr. Fine uncovered a chronic GI condition. And unlike any other episode this season, his patient Lindsay is a medical provider herself. She's a physical therapist. We'll talk about the management of chronic illnesses, how they affect sense of self, and how being on the other side of the Johnny gives providers a chance to reflect on how they practice. I'm Viknesh Kasturi. I'm Alex Homer. And this is Back of the Chart. For an extended period of time, Lindsay had noticed blood in her stool, so she booked an appointment with Dr. Fine. He's the director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at Brown's Warren Albert Medical School. My entire family, with the exception of my brother, uh, are all in healthcare. Uh, my mom's a nurse, my sister's a nurse practitioner, my dad's all a physical therapist, and extended aunts and uncles are physicians, pathologists. Um, so I grew up in a very, everyone knew everything medically. I was pretty comfortable talking about everything. At first I was a little bit shy, like with Dr. Fine, like what 30-year-old wants to go in and talk about, you know, their bathroom habits and what's going on is always kind of, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's not, not my first choice, um, but I got over it pretty quickly because like Dr. Fine said, I always felt really comfortable and um, he... It just put me at ease, and I, I never really held back with any symptoms. One of the biggest things is to make the patient feel comfortable, um, because for me, it's very easy to talk about what I do for my job, but for patients coming in with those symptoms, they might not really feel very comfortable talking about that sort of thing. So I think from early on, we try to, or at least when I was meeting with Lindsay, make sure that we were very open atmosphere that she can tell me exactly what's going on because I really don't want to miss any piece of the picture and make sure I'm getting all of the information because that really does help um, decide what we're going to do next step um, after. To get to the bottom of what was causing Lindsay's symptoms, Dr. Fine ordered some standard lab tests. When those came back negative, they moved on to the next step, a colonoscopy, which is when a camera is passed backwards through the digestive tract in order to better visualize the bowel. I think what happened was you were we we thought maybe initially it might have been you know some constipation leading to some hemorrhoids, but you know Lindsay was like this is really persistent and we said well even though blood works normal and everything you know appears to be coming back uh, normal why don't we take that next step and go get some more information which is with the colonoscopy do you want to try to describe it from your end or I have a fantastic story about my first colonoscopy <laughs> it was actually around Halloween um, so wow. I went to CVS and bought Halloween candy, Miralax, and ginger ale <laughs> in preparation. So I can't imagine what the cashier is thinking, but my husband and I got a laugh from that. <laughs> um, what are but, you going to do to those poor kids is what they were right? thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a little bit of um, apprehension. My husband has been getting screened um, since he was 25 because of his father's history. Um, so I'd seen him go through the process uh once before I'm my own, but 
I <laughs> I wasn't looking forward to it. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, but it was unpleasant. Uh, and then I had some fun the next day. I went to work and I uh, I was pretty dizzy um, and and felt like I was gonna faint and ended up in the ED. Uh, and they gave me some fluids and Dr. Fine came down to check in on me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I was fine after that, but uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a a little wild ride first colonoscopy for me. <laughs> I had a couple of like my girlfriends that had had to go through it for various reasons and they're like, "Up, oh, just get your Netflix and you know, just be comfortable and you tell your husband to leave and just, you know, get through it." So, I don't know, get a good book. They were just trying to get me like distracted so I wouldn't focus on it. <laughs> Yeah, so when we're uh, going in there and looking at normal mucosa, we'll see the vasculature is robust. It looks healthy. Um, there's no ulcerations. There's no redness. And there's, you know, we'll see friability, meaning that the mucosa, even if you were to rub up against it with a scope, would easily bleed. Uh, so you shouldn't see any of that stuff. It should be a nice, healthy appearing, shiny uh, uh, mucosa. But in uh, Lindsay's case, when we went in there, we saw friability, redness, erythema. Um, and so as soon as we see that, uh, me being an IBD expert, um, that's something that just sets off the, this is what we're kind of going down. And it's a diagnosis we really have to put together, not only with how she presented the endoscopy and the pathology, uh, we need all of those components to kind of clinch it. So um, we kind of rely on everything. So not just one blood test or one thing to kind of you know, lead us down the way. When she initially came in with the bleeding, if it would have stopped, I would have said, well, we're probably just going to find hemorrhoids. But in her case, the symptoms were persistent. So I was suspicious that even though the lab work came back normal, we were going to find some inflammation. And as soon as we went in there, we saw the changes in the mucosa were not normal. And so that's kind of where we was leading us towards a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, that being ulcerative colitis. We don't actually know why it happens, um, but it's a component of inflammatory bowel disease. There's something called ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. I believe ulcerative colitis was actually described first, and what that is is it's a chronic inflammatory disease of the GI tract, and ulcerative colitis is just thought to affect, it just affects the colon itself, whereas Crohn's disease can affect anywhere from the mouth to the anus. Um, and so they have different meanings and they have different treatments in the sense of what we're trying to get healed up. Um, but ultimately, uh, we don't know why it happens. It could be a combination of genetics, environment, uh, some people think it's some dietary food that they're eating. Um, so a lot of stuff in this big topic of the microbiome, which is being heavily studied now. We're not that savvy, but we're still trying to learn more about it. But that might be playing an important role as well. Unfortunately, we don't really know what causes IBD. It could be genetics. It could be environmental factors. Or it could be diet. But most likely, it's a complicated mix of all of those. We're working towards a cure right now, but currently we address it by suppressing the inflammation. So once we figure out what's driving it, um, then we'll hopefully get towards a cure. But for right now, it's uh, suppressing the inflammation and managing it. Almost like chronic heart disease, diabetes, those chronic diseases, um, they have medicines to kind of help out. So that's what we're trying to do right now. Boy, well. <laughs> I think, um, it, what did we start you we off? We started with mesalamine, um, which is a pill I would think I took four to start with a day yeah and then i think we ramped up to six on 
like things weren't as under control as we were hoping for. For me, just having diarrhea many, many times a day, like up to 12 to 15 if it's really bad, that's only happened to me twice. Um, so that's it's not always like that. But if, it, if my symptoms are really bad, I also don't have much of an appetite and it's hard to stay hydrated and... Um, so I end up feeling just really, like, wiped out and run down. And I'm the kind of person that doesn't know when to take a break, so I'll keep trying to work through it um, and then just end up 10 steps back kind of thing. But, yeah, I guess to just fatigue and, like, the, the actual uh, increase in bowel movements is pretty limiting. Yeah, so the medication does a pretty good job of keeping things stable, but even despite our best treatment, there can be flares. Uh, and these flares can be from infections. Um, so in Lindsay's case, we had an infection once or twice that kind of flared things up a little bit. We're trying not to remember that because those weren't fun times, right? Those were terrible times. Those were terrible times. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're talking about C. diff colitis, which is a big big thing that happens, especially in her field being in the hospital, um, just the exposure on the hospital. But so that can trigger it. Um, certain diet foods can trigger it. Um, stress can trigger it. We've looked at. So um, all sorts of things can lead to triggers. But the, being on the medication uh, is important because it can really limit those and help you know get people to do their jobs, function normally, um, and kind of do what they want to do. So there are a number of really fascinating issues here. First is the relief that patients feel when they get a diagnosis. They finally get to put a name on what's been bothering them. Second is the additional workplace hazard healthcare providers have to deal with when they have health conditions of their own. Exactly. And the last thing is the effect that conditions can have on your self-image. If your condition prevents you from enjoying the activities that are important to your identity, then how do you grapple with your new sense of self? I am someone who really strongly identifies as an athlete and I always have and I I think probably one of my first thoughts was what is this going to do to my body am I going to have like side effects from this disease or the treatment and not be able to do what I love um which is running and weightlifting um and also what does this mean for work um I absolutely love what I do um I can't imagine doing anything else and I think when my my symptoms have been at their worst, um, I'm pretty fatigued, um, and it's also hard to be at work when your symptoms are flared up, and I mean, it's nearly impossible to be productive. <laughs> so it was kind of a, a twofold, like, what does this mean for my, like, things in my life that I enjoy doing, and what does this mean for my career? Um, so just a lot of unknowns. Even just things like, um, I lost a lot of weight, um, and I'm still very much smaller than I was um, before I had my diagnosis, and that's just kind of a weird feeling um, because people will look at me and they're, oh, you're so tiny, or how do you stay so tiny? And I'm like, well, it's really not my choice. And um, I was used to being like the big like athletic girl in school and um, basically my whole life before this point, and then kind of to lose that... Uh, was it's been really tough. I mean, I still wrestle with it uh, even now, and I've, it's been like three years actually yeah. in October. But I still, that, I think that's like one of the biggest things for me is just like a big change in my identity and how I 
uh, see myself, I guess. My job's a lot easier when I'm stronger because I have to do a lot of, a lot of heavy lifting. Um, but I still, I mean, when, I, when I'm feeling better and my symptoms are pretty under control, I can do my runs um, and, like, jog outside. And then um, I've gotten back to weightlifting, like, here and there, but not at the point where I was uh, before my diagnosis. The biggest thing I've grappled with is because I, there are people that have it so much worse than me, so I feel guilty even like feeling frustrated or complaining to my friends or my family about my symptoms or what's going on. So again, working with folks that are undergoing cancer treatment for the past seven years, um, I see people in such bad shape going through some pretty trying horrible things and then so grappling with oh man I've you know kind of that woe is me feeling when it all started or when things get really bad and then like well you know what <laughs> there's a lot of people that have it a lot worse and just the guilt of like feeling like I, I feel like I'm not in any place to feel bad about the situation and then at the same time like like well I do feel really frustrated or upset by it. Um, I think it's made me a lot more understanding of my own patients. And I've always felt that I've been pretty compassionate um, provider, but um, going through and being, like you said, on the other side of the Johnny and seeing how, um, you know, when you're in the hospital, sometimes people just come in and they start talking to you and they don't introduce themselves and you don't know who they are, why they're there, what's going on. Um, and just being much more aware of telling my own patients like everything I'm going to do and why and um, asking if this or that is okay before I do it and really trying to be a much better active listener um, for my own patients. And I think that I just feel a little bit more empathy um, for folks and what they're going through um, than I might have before uh, because of my own experience as a patient. Yeah, no, I think I take the same approach with every patient except if they're a healthcare provider. I know that their background and their you know, knowledge is going to be, you know, we're going to be able to maybe use some different terminology or at least um, once we establish some terms that they're very comfortable with it. But I usually try to start and, you know, with a baseline and see what you're comfortable with because, like Lindsay was saying, sometimes it could just be overwhelming. So if I'm throwing out weird terms and stuff I'm comfortable with, she might not be very comfortable with it at all, even though she's a healthcare provider. So I try to kind of see what or gauge the patient and see what they're comfortable with. But for the most part, I take a very broad and generalized approach, and then we kind of develop that um, as we go on, and we can get as technical as people want. The They overlap, um, and so even though we might think there's a clock or time where it's, you know, done with the job it really does never end i remember actually calling you on vacation one time felt so um, bad. <laughs> yeah no no um because i knew these labs were pending and she you know would be you know several days before she'd hear back and even though we have people potentially covering um it's more important you know for me to just take those few extra minutes and talk to her um or talk to whoever it is um and i don't think that's anything that really cuts into my personal life but it also kind of you know is important for me to do um, 
But I'm sure for you, you know, you do the same thing for your patients when you're caring for them, um, staying late or whatever. Uh, or yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I pretty much, like, I would, I try to treat my patients like I would want my own family treated. And so that sometimes means staying late or missing part of my lunch break. Um, yeah. And I would rather do that on occasion and feel like I've delivered the kind of care that I would want for say my own grandparent or whoever it is um, and just sort of um, approach it that way and in the scheme of things like it's it's not the end of the world if I stay 10 or 15 minutes late if it means that I've helped somebody or um, you know made their day a little bit brighter <laughs> this profession and being in healthcare nothing beats it um, minus a lot of the stress that can come down with it but I mean the most important thing at the end of the day is getting those patient interactions and seeing how we're affecting them um, and impacting them I don't think it's second to none I enjoy it um, and would never go back I think medicine has changed and healthcare has changed with all of the extra um, electronic medical records and all the other stuff we have to worry about. And that really cuts into time with patients and cuts into time with home, you know, lifestyle, writing notes from home or checking charts at home. So all of that kind of has been somewhat of a drawback. But I think as long as you balance it and kind of take things with a stride, it, you know, you're still going to do at the end of the day what you want to do. And that's help patients get better and fix them and try to fix the problem. Oh man, I I've know I'm one of those lucky people. I knew from a pretty young age I wanted to be a physical therapist, and originally uh, it didn't have anything to do with my dad. Even though he's a PT, he worked in the ICU for his pretty much his entire career, and I was like, I'm gonna work with the NHL team, and I'm <laughs> I'm gonna do outpatient ortho, and then um, I did a complete 180, and I've been in acute care uh, my whole career, and I've never looked back. Um, I would. Would I do grad school again? Oh my God, absolutely not. I don't know how I got through it, um, but I I was meant to be a PT. It's a long road for sure, but it's a, it's a good road. <laughs> <laughs> we'd like to thank Dr. Fine and Lindsay for sharing their story with us. And we'd like to thank you for listening. Next time, you'll be hearing a story that discusses the challenges of translation. In the meantime, if you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you're listening right now. And if you love this episode, please write a five-star review on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show. Back of the Chart is executive produced and hosted by Alex Homer and Viknesh Kasturi. Our producer is Sierra Fang Horvath. Our editor is Neha Mukherjee. Our patient liaison is John Lin. And our graphics are by Juliana Kim. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to faculty and staff at Brown University for making this possible.